Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a very special guest on today who we have been trying to have on for a while and schedules finally aligned. We have the amazing Britt Hartley. How are you today, Britt? I'm so great. I'm so glad that we could be here today. Oh, I'm really happy too. We've been, you, you've been on our short list for a long time. Landon and I have like a wish list of people that we hope will come on. And then we connected at Sunstone and that yes. was so fun. We had an awesome conversation and we're like, we got to get around to this. And then a couple of months went by. We're like, we're doing this. Dang it. No matter what it takes, we're going to do and it. And we did so. it. We're here. We're it's happening. It. We did it. <laughs> That's right. All of our viewers and listeners, this has been in the making for months. It's very <laughs> exciting. So let's start out, Landon, by reading Britt's um, bio, and then we'll just jump right in. Okay. And obviously her name, Britt, is short for Brittany. So Brittany Hartley is a spiritual director at No Nonsense Spirituality. She has a master's degree in theology with a specialization in the Future of American Religion. She helps people with religious deconstruction, life reconstruction, and nihilism recovery. I thought this was uh, the shortest bio I think I've read that says so much. <laughs> That's right. Concise and perfectly stated. That's exactly it. So no, we're just really happy that you have time to come and, and be on Mormonish with us today. And I, I think we'll just start out, but maybe not, maybe not all of our viewers and listeners know exactly who you are and all the wonderful things that you do. So let's just start with a little, tell us about you, and then we'll just kind of dive in wherever the conversation takes us. Sure. So I live in Boise, Idaho with my husband and four kids, and I deconstructed from Mormonism about 13 years ago. So I was a little bit on the early end of the wave. It was all the things that you can imagine. You know, it was very hard and heartbreaking and isolating. Um, and then I really continued to explore religion and spirituality. I've been studying history and especially history of religion um, since I've been 18. And so I've always just been interested in these questions. And so I kept really the work that I do now is not only did I deconstruct Mormonism, but I also deconstructed religion and God and free will and sense of self. And that that deconstruction bulldozer stops for some people, like they stop with Mormonism right. and they find something that works for them and they're good. And mine just kept going until there was nothing left. <laughs> and when you get to the nothing left, we call that in philosophy, the void, um, or it could be nihilism, where you just really feel like you're in this kind of black hole space. And so really the work that I do now is uh, helping people who not just only deconstructed, because there's a lot of uh, you know, post-Mormon content creators. There's a lot of uh, deconstruction coaches in Mormonism and, and in post-Mormonism. And while I still do that from time to time, and I'm still involved in that work, I've really shifted over to this other space here where what happens when you keep deconstructing and what happens when you get stuck out there, because you really can get stuck out there in the chaos. And that place has been for me, it was harder than my Mormon deconstruction because I lost all of my anchors. Um, and then also I just, I, I really dug into the philosophy. I really dug into the tools for how to work in that space and got myself out into a place that, that was, you know, thriving and great again. And now I, I really enjoy helping others anywhere along that line in that process. So that's kind of what I do. Wow. It's interesting because you you specialize also in Gen Z, correct? Which is uh yeah, my my focus I've never heard of a specialization like that. So. <laughs> yeah, part of kind of part of the focus in in uh 
my my degree, my master's degree is in applied theology, and I really wanted to focus on the future of American religion, which is kind of where everybody's deconstructing. Where is this going? What's next? What's how do we how do we even try to integrate these spiritual tools into society if everybody's leaving organized religion? And a lot of that is really studying Gen Z and what is Gen Z doing and what is Gen Z drawn to, because that is giving us some markers for what the future of religion and spirituality is going to look like. So, you know, my capstone project and paper was really about Gen Z spirituality. And I'm really interested in um, this gap that we have right now, which is, parents, us included, all three of us parents, you know, do the deconstruction journey. And then the kids, they miss a piece of this kind of order and structure and identity building and community building because they may have missed some of that community. And then now how can they get their spiritual tools or a spiritual path or positive mental health? Because uh, a lot of spirituality is just good mental health. How how does that become integrated in their lives, especially when they're growing up in a world that seems so chaotic and so big? They're aware of all the wars. They're aware of climate change. All, the relationship structures are changing. The institutional structures are changing. Even something like getting a career is just so much more complicated. And so, you know, Gen Z is really paying the price for this gap in spirituality. And we're seeing that in the anxiety statistics, in the depression statistics, in the suicide statistics, uh, in risky behavior and, and drug yeah. use statistics, that there's something happening here. And I'm, I'm really interested in, in that piece as well. Yeah, that is so fascinating. We read um, in the book club that we run, the Good Book Club, um, Jana Reese's book, The Next Mormons, where she mm. kind of, it's the first time I'd ever really thought that there's there's a big difference in how different generations deconstruct, how they stay in for different reasons. Mm. And maybe let's remind our viewers, what age ranges are we talking about? So like, I'm thinking I'm actually, oh my gosh, I am a boomer. I'm the very like last right there on the cusp of almost Gen X boomer because I was born in 65. So I'm right there. Landon, a little younger, you are Gen X right there. And then you have millennials, which would so be- I'm a, I'm a millennial. I'm an okay. elder millennial. So I think okay. it starts with 1985 or 1984. Okay, that's what I thought. Because I, I get that that first end of millennials. And then Gen right. Z is 1997 to 2012. Okay. So okay. that's kind of the group that we're really watching. There is Gen Alpha, but they're, you know, they're younger. We don't really have any data on them yet. Right. But they, you know, we don't really know what they're going to do. And so when we're talking about the future of religion and spirituality, we're really looking at Gen Z. Like, mm -hmm. okay, their parents aren't taking them to church. What are they yeah. doing? What are they yeah. going to do? And uh, we're, we're watching to see kind of where they're going to go with uh, spirituality, because spirituality is something that's very, very positive for mental health. Um, but they're also like for Mormonism, these kids just aren't resonating with Mormonism when the prophet's talking about you're a part of this tribe of Israel. It's just not like, it's just nothing. Yeah. Like it's yeah. not well, resonating with them at generations. all. So right. I mean, it's a big gap. It's a big gap. Yeah. And um, we can just see that and 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 then just with especially LGBTQ yeah. issues and and then women also, they just don't have this space where what do you mean my friends aren't going to be in a heaven? What do you mean that they're yeah. broken? Like they just they just don't have any space for that kind of theology. Yeah. So so uh, but they are struggling because we don't we this it's this gap period where we mm -hmm. haven't replaced anything for them. And so uh, it, it's definitely something that I'm watching and I'm concerned about. And when, yeah, you, no, when, the, you, 
when you say you're watching that, you're watching that from an like an academic side of things. I mean, both. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 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 uh, Rebecca and I were talking today because we're watching it in our own family. Right. We deconstructed, exactly. you know, we we have the tools that we grew up with in the background. But then the we realize, OK, our children, our children don't. And it's it's mm -hmm. really hard because, uh, you know, religion was kind of the easy button. Um, my parents <laughs> raised me this way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put my kids in. They're going to be raised. Yeah. There, there's activities. And, there's and even like ex-Mormonism and post-Mormonism, like I have a pretty vibrant post-Mormon group here in Boise. We gather together. We've been gathering together for over five years. And so it is a community, but we came together because we trauma bonded over Mormonism. Yes. So even if yes. we were to try to implement something with the kids, there's nothing holding yeah. these kids together. There's nothing there's, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, they have, we they were drawn together. Background. Yeah. They don't have yeah. a shared background. Some of them attended church. A lot of them didn't. Uh, some attend with one parent, but not another. And so even the post Mormon group that I have couldn't reach our children. And so we're having to figure out, you know, and, and that's, this is what everybody's asking is, okay, I deconstructed, I sort of made sense of where I am, but now what I do, what do I do with my kids? And and that's a really big question that I, that I just really like to spend a lot of time and, in. And it's such an important question because I was listening, also our viewers and listeners should know that Britt has an amazing TikTok presence. Like if you want your mind blowed every day, if you want some really great information, she has these wonderful bite-sized TikToks that really dive into it. And I was listening to one this morning about this topic and it really, I started to think about my own family and it literally described it to a T because my oldest, when he was 15, he's 28 now, just turned 28, you know, he... I came home one Sunday, he was having a panic attack trauma over a bishop's interview, invasive bishop's mm. interview, and said, I can't go anymore. So I made that decision right then. I've told this story before to choose my child's mental health over church. So I said, mm. you do not have to go. But that's where I left it because I didn't know what else to replace it with. I continued to go. Mm -hmm. I continued to take my other two children. So then my middle child goes. Um, he becomes very fundamental in, in his views as my husband and I kind of deconstruct and we're stepping away and we're loosey goosey about the church. He doubles down on that fundamentalism, you know, then my younger son who's on a mission now, he wasn't really raised in the church. But then his senior year, when the pressure for the mission's on, dove more into the fundamentalism, as, as you discussed. So my family is a perfect example of that. I have an older son still searching, I would say, looking for different spiritualities, delving into almost everything you describe in your TikTok, you know, the different, you know, social issues or the occult or, you know, just different ways to find different communities. And then I have the two fundamentalists. And I thought how you described the idea that my husband and I raised in the church have all the tools, have the community, and very easy to say, okay, we're done now. We were raised that way, and we never thought, but what are we giving our children? You know, so they're in very and different it may, places. It, it may so be important. too much. I know, and it may be too much to ask for one generation to do to deconstruct yes. and also reconstruct because yes. really, you know, each generation is kind of known for something like they do something collectively or they pass something on or they stop, they stop some kind of injustice in some way. And so because deconstruction is so hard, I mean, it just kicks, it just kicks you in the gut. There's so much to unpack. There's so much of yourself and your identity wrapped into this, that really it's almost as if, you know, this generation, especially kind of Gen X generation, the best thing that they could do is do that work. Like they did that work. And then we're almost kind of passing the torch on to the next generation and to say, okay, we deconstructed. That was really hard work. That was difficult. And maybe it's too much to ask for to 
to to fully deconstruct and be untriggered enough to also reconstruct by the time your kids are needing some spirituality. So in some ways, it's almost like this is kind of the problem that Gen Z is going to have to face because they're not going to have a a great example from the generations before them because all generations before them had tools in the organized religion. Yeah, it's like, it'd be like tearing down a building while you're building it at the same time uh, on the same. <laughs> it it might be too much yeah. to ask for, yeah. really. So yeah. I don't, I don't want to blame parents that like, oh, you didn't reconstruct fast enough. I, I don't know if we could have, honestly. I don't know if we could have, but and we can people, start to have these conversations with our kids about spirituality again. Some right. people will say, well, then don't deconstruct and then problem solved. Yeah. But then, you're, but then the kid, then you're the kid leaves this, the church anyway. Yeah. So yeah, you're stuck yeah. in this. I got to believe something I don't believe and act like <laughs> yeah. I don't believe it, which is bad for your mental and, health. And yeah. statistics shows the kids aren't going to stay in church anyway. So you'd end up in the same spot, which is the kids yeah. are not getting tools for their generation. That's what's happening. All Either way. Lead. Yeah, no, that makes sense. No, and I thought you talked about one of the first things when we started our book club, which was three years ago, we started learning more about myth. We read Sapiens, you know, and that's the first, I mean, I think we sort of had kicked those ideas around, but it really made it clear you do need a myth. And in most of our cases, it was our religious ideology and upbringing. That was our myth, our collective myth that held everybody together. And now, like you said, that's gone. And, And it's such an interesting, it's such a daunting task to try to replace that you can never do it in the same way did you you're deconstructing you're in the void you have children were you able to kind of find ways to teach your children some of these things that you've been talking about I I mean yeah yes and no so yes there was no. <laughs> there was a period where like a lot of parents like I don't want to ever say that oh yeah I was deconstructing but I perfectly knew how to yeah. do this for my kids like that would be an absolute exactly. lie so when I was in really kind of the heart of my deconstruction over a decade ago there was a period there where I just didn't feel like I could teach the kids anything and part of that is as Mormon women we are taught and ingrained like I had to have my own spiritual directors point this out to me later on in my journey that we're ingrained that as a mother your job is to be a step ahead of your child so your child can follow and you are responsible for that. And so when you leave Mormonism as a mother, it can feel like um, like all that old scaffolding is still there. All your thought patterns are still there. You haven't you haven't thought new thoughts on purpose yet. So all your thought patterns are still there. So the old thought pattern of I need to know what to teach my kids is still there. But then you don't know anything because when you're in the midst of deconstruction, up is down and left is right. And you don't know you don't know anything. Right. And so for for a couple of years there, I was in that where I just didn't touch it at all with my kids because I didn't know, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to teach. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how I could lead. And so it took continuing to deconstruct and realizing that this was a Mormon construct that I needed to lead my kids. And I could unpack that to finally get to a point where I could say, oh, I don't need to model a spiritual path where I know something. I could actually model spirituality, what spirituality looks like when you don't know anything, when you've accepted that you may not know the mysteries of the universe. What does life look like then? What does spirituality look like then? How can I show my kids 
um, some of my process as a gift that, hey, I'm offering you a gift that you can see me change or you can see me change my mind or let's have this discussion or what do you think? And so once I started, you know, unpacking more of that Mormon thought where you feel like you have to teach your kids capital T truth, then I was able to shift in some more relational ways of doing spirituality and spirituality where you don't have to know anything, where it's about connection, where it's about life, where it's about. And for me, that's the definition of spirituality, a deep connection to self and outside of self. And there's many ways that you can curate that with children um, because we are naturally spiritual in some ways. Like this is a this is a human nature thing that we feel connected that that music and and conversation and nature can put us into states of consciousness of transcendence or awe and we have science about it and this is human nature it's not necessarily contained in a church and so once i um stopped feeling like i needed to be the leader and figure out my spiritual path so that my kids could walk behind me once i realized that i could hold their hand and we could walk through the world not knowing but a different kind of spirituality where we could instill just think about how amazing it is to be alive we can still connect to each other we can still connect to the world we can still connect to nature we can still connect to our deepest selves there's so many things that we can connect to that's when you know the spirituality in my home was able to improve and that's so authentic you you create such an authentic dynamic and relationship with your kids where the opposite of that is, I don't want to go to primary mom, you're going, you know, mm, and, and mm-hmm. there's no discussion of anything. What are you feeling? Why don't you want to? What aren't you getting there? Or what? Yeah, I, I'm just I'm so jealous of that. Because again, different generation, but I didn't have that with my kids. I had a truth I was told to pass on. I knew right. I had to send them to a building where they would receive it and almost dusted your hands. My job's done. They're in their mm-hmm. primary class, you know, and that was it. But then that all falls apart when you move past that. And either they're left there or have nowhere to go so yeah these are big Mm. questions but so important to talk about so i i went so after i kind of went through my couple years where i didn't touch spirituality at all i didn't even i couldn't even know how to talk to my kids i started to one of the questions that i think is really helpful for people is to ask yourself what religion did for you so what is this doing for me that that's positive? Okay, I really love before family dinner how we say something so that we're marking our values before we eat a meal. Okay, I like that. And so what I started to do is I started to say, okay, what are all the things that Mormonism gave me that I liked that's healthy for me and my family and my kids? And how can I integrate that in a more um, authentic way? Like you said, Rebecca. And so I started doing these little things. So for our prayer, instead of saying a prayer, which feels super inauthentic to me, we say um, a little line from a movie that my kids watch where we say Ohana means family and family means no one gets left behind or forgotten. So my kids are very young and we say that before we eat because I want, I liked holding hands and marking a value, but I didn't want the value to be wish list to sky daddy, right? I want the value to be, we're a family and that means something. And then Sunday morning, you know, I liked having some spiritual time set aside for Sunday morning. So now we do, and and I'm not talking about two hour church. I'm talking about a half an hour where we read a book, we have a little lesson, we take a little walk outside and we play a game together as a family. And it's very, very short, but my kids are getting more out of that 
then when I, then when I used to take them to primary and you have to dress them up and whatever. And so I started to, and this is when you start reconstructing after deconstruction is what was Mormonism doing for me that was positive and how can I integrate that into my life authentically? And that's when, um, for example, my mixed marriage, because during this time, my husband was still attending and still believing and I wasn't. But once he saw that I had reconstructed something that was better, he left and now we're both out. But he didn't do that until I was reconstructing or else for the person who's in, in a mixed faith marriage, deconstruction is just chaos. You don't know where this train is going. But when you start reconstructing, that's when there was enough order and structure at home that he felt safe enough to step away. And so that and now we're we're both out. Yeah, no, that's uh, that, that's great, because we uh one of the things we we looked at in in our book club that we were trying to struggle with our, when we start our book club we uh, our, our idea was well now we know what we don't believe let's find out what we do believe so mm -hmm. we started to look at books that gave us other perspectives other ways to look at the world and mm -hmm. uh one of the books we read uh small creatures such as we by sasha fagan mm -hmm. oh. yeah i know let's great. all point to our bookshelves there it is yeah great it's... book yep yep, yep there yep. it is oh it's and, so beautiful it gave us the opportunity to look at what kind of uh what kind of things in our life that we're now missing because of the church that you know the rituals the family things what can we replace and it made us start to think and try to rebuild some of those um, which with our kids being mostly gone by then, that becomes a little harder because we don't mm. see them on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's certainly something that everyone who's deconstructed now has to look at and say, what is going to tie me together if I'm not following these same rituals I used to follow? I've got to create ritual in my life and with my family, uh, something mm. that they can look at. Yeah, I really love that book um, because she's daughter of Carl Sagan, right? Mm -hmm. So she was raised in a secular home, but there's so much science behind rituals that rituals scientifically help us to process emotion. Uh, they help us to mark our values. They do all kinds of things psychologically. And so this is kind of where we are with spirituality, which is... Um, you know, we're leaving organized religion because these rituals have just become so ossified over time that they just don't mean anything anymore. But yet there's science behind uh, rituals and community and transcendence and singing together and art and music and rites of passage and uh, meditation and contemplation and all, all of those things have science behind it showing this is good for you. This is good stuff. And so what you have to do, you know, the, the hardest part of deconstructing is when you start uh, really having to reconstruct because then you have to combat all your old thought patterns in order to do that. And that shift, um, I really enjoy helping people with that shift because like you're talking about, you can read something like that, um, like Sasha, Sasha Sagan's book for ritual, but there's like 20 things under the umbrella of spirituality that have good science behind it. And so how can we get all those into your life in an authentic way? And, and that's really the work that I'm doing now. 
Yeah, that book was really powerful and important. We made a big spreadsheet and and those in the book club who are post-Mormon, we started sharing, what have you come up with? What have you developed? Fantastic. And the really amazing part of that was that everything was so personal. You know, somebody say, well, my family loves the outdoors. We've decided to go do this. And another family, mm -hmm. well, during this holiday, we're going to do this. And just to celebrate your spirituality and your connection in that way. And it made me think of, I was a primary teacher forever and a primary pianist because I kind of felt that's where I could kind of be safe at church. You know, mm -hmm. I thought that I, I later, yeah, I later had thought that's one of the more dangerous areas of the church is where they have the little kids in there. And you would see that you'd see these kids um, come in there with senses of joy. They like to hear about Jesus and things like this, but I'll never forget this one little boy. He was always dancing in the, in the aisle and they would say, sit down. And he goes, but Jesus makes me happy and I'm dancing, oh. you know, which is beautiful, but Aww. not in primary. They would make yeah. him sit down. They would Aww. wait the meeting until he sat down and folded his arms. And, you know, they would always, we'd kind of laugh. Oh, is he going to dance again? But now on the other side of it, I think about this little boy and his joy and it was dancing. And Aww. so in an environment that you're describing, a parent or somebody would say, let's celebrate that. Let's find mm -hmm. a ritual where we can dance and, and show sounds, how happy yeah, we and are. And it sounds super overwhelming at first, which I'm sure yeah. you got into when you do the book club, because because religions have had thousands of years to create their liturgical calendars yes. of these are the heroes and these are the values and these are the rituals and these are the holidays. They've had thousands of years to do that, to, to meet human need. And so it can be overwhelming when you feel like, wait, I have to like create all this by myself. But when you lean on your own resonances, like you were talking about the little things that you already do that, you know, make you feel connected, whether it be dancing or like my family, we're a Star Wars family. And so we celebrate Star Wars Day. And absolutely, <laughs> it's a part of our liturgical calendar on May right. 4th. And I go all out. And and we do all the Star Wars things. But then we also talk about good and evil. We talk about good and evil in their lives. And we talk about... Um, you know, you know, the, the freedom fighters and the rebellion, we talk about all those principles, even the force. And, and from the outside, it looks silly, but it's a part of our family dynamic. It's a part of our family culture and conversation. And so it doesn't need to be these lofty things like, oh, I take my kid to temple every week or something like that. Like, no, you can implement these things in small ways so that your kids see ways that of connection and they get to experience those connective feelings so that they have something to turn to when inevitably at some time in the, their life, they'll feel disconnected. They'll feel depression. They'll, do, do they'll you, feel existential angst. Do, yeah. do you feel they get disconnected when you have the extended family that is all celebrating all of these Mormon, especially, you know, yes. you, the baptism at eight years old and the, right. the they get confirmed or they get the priesthood at 12 or whatever. And then the missions uh, at 18 and 19 and then the marriage and the ceremony and the family all celebrates these as wonderful events in kids' lives. But now your kid's not doing that. Yeah. It's not participating in that. And they get left out by their own extended yeah. family. It's a problem. So there's a couple of things going on there. There's some pros to doing connection in your own way, because then you can actually re reach your kids where they're at instead of saying, yeah, you have the choice to get baptized, but it's not really a choice, right? They're eight. They're going to have a party. It's not a choice. And so there's some pros to like doing it intentionally, 
but there is there is some cons in pulling your kids out of community. Um, and I remember, so I've, I've adopted three children, my oldest adopted child, we've had them all since they were born. And my oldest, I still had my temple recommend then I was so nuanced, I was essentially out. But I, um, we did a ceiling in the temple, a ceiling ceremony. And it was so beautiful and so sacred, even though I didn't believe any of it was priesthood or metaphysical or anything like that. I had lost all my belief by then. But just having the people in my tribe, in my family, show up in white, set aside half of their Saturday to come welcome this child who was born outside of our family and have a ritual to welcome them into our family, even if there was nothing magical going on, it was absolutely sacred. But by the time my next two children came, my next two adopted children, I had lost my temple recommend by then. And there was no ritual I could really do where they would come because there's no precedent for that. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't. And so some of the th those things you do miss, like, like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Some of those things are, are sad to miss, but you can do your best to replace them. So my oldest son is 12. And I really wanted him to have something. I wanted him to have adult mentors. I wanted him to get moral education. And he started getting into karate. So we went all in on karate. And then he got his black belt last year. And so I invited all of our friends and family to the ceremony where he gets his black belt. And they talk about discipline and they talk about all these moral values. It's very Bruce Lee. It's very cool. And all the family was there supporting them. So even though it wasn't the he gets the priesthood ritual that my family was used to, I still invited them to like, hey, he's getting his black belt. This has been his thing. It's, it's really a part of his spiritual path, to be honest, that I've that I've encouraged. And he's getting his black belt. Will you come and, and support him? And and sometimes they come and it's great. And if they don't come, then hopefully some friends come or hopefully you have friends there that you've met. And I still got that moment where he was the center of attention. He had done something amazing. There was moral values. It was a rite of passage. He felt like he was becoming a man, just like you do when you're 12 and you feel like I'm a I'm a young man now or whatever that whatever they feel when they get the priesthood. So we still had that moment. It just looked different. And you kind of have to pave your own way there. Yeah, I love that concept. That's wonderful. And I think even though, like you said, you didn't believe you were in the temple, it was a wonderful moment, you know, and I think we still have that. I, I think of my youngest son, who, like I said, is on a mission. And, you know, he, of course, thinks we want nothing to do with it, any of the process. And one day he kind of came home from church and said, oh, yeah, I was given the Melchizedek priesthood. And my husband and I were both like, I mean, even though we we are removed from that, that's a rite of passage. That's a ceremony. We have many mm. extended family that would have love to be there, even extended family members that would have loved to confer that priesthood, you know, even yeah. though now we don't see it the same way. And we felt a huge loss. And we were sort Absolutely. of thinking, why do we feel this loss? Because we're not, we're not on board with that anymore. But as you describe it, that's exactly what it is, that rite of passage, mm -hmm. that special things that happens, you know, at different milestones in life. So they're still there, you know, it's yeah. still part of it, whether it's connected to the church or not, those things are so you know, very, very important. It's very important. It's one of the things that um, if I were to, if I were to pin some blame on the deconstruction community, including myself, one of the things that's so hard when you're a deconstructing parent is that um, you're leaving the binary, right? You're leaving the 
the black and white thinking and you're going into this gray thinking. But the hard thing, it was so hard for me. It's still hard for me sometimes is that the kids still need black and white. They need heroes. They need good guys and bad guys. They need safety. They need some amount of limited information. Like, like if you told a five-year-old everything that was happening in the world, um, it's, it's not good for their ego development. And so it's really hard because when you're in this nuance uh, identity crisis, sometimes ego death space, but your kid is in a space where they need identity. They need to build their ego. They need black and white. They need heroes that aren't just complicated heroes and villains. You know, all of our villain stories are like, you know, they're complicated villains, but at a certain age, they actually need a good guy and a bad guy. Like that's what their brain needs. And it's really hard when that binary space is triggering because you're coming from Mormonism, it's really hard to go back and give your kids what they need, which is order and structure and ritual and rites of passage and ego building and all those things. Um, it can be hard to do that when that space feels triggering because you're deconstructing. And and um, it, it's something that's really hard to do. It was definitely hard for me when I was in that space. That's a dangerous spot for, for Mormons because for, for a lot of kids, you know, uh, like their dad might be their hero, but when dad leaves the church and they're still in, they start being told, well, your dad doesn't, can't do this. Your dad can't do that. And they even lose mm. the father or the mother as the hero. And then they may leave at some point, but by then, you know, it's kind of, either been damaged or they have to re reignite mm. that. So they, they not only do they lose their, you know, religious heroes, Nephi, Moroni, all those guys, but you may lose your father or your mother as your hero as part of that transition. And that's really hard to rebuild. Yeah, that's, that's really hard. The only thing that you can really do there is just lead with as much authenticity as you can because what you're modeling and and this is a really good shift to remember if you're if you're in parenting right now is how can i rethink everything that i'm doing for my kids as a gift so if i um don't know what's going on by being honest with my kids that i don't know what i believe right now it actually is giving them a gift that they don't have to know or in the future, when they have an identity crisis, they remember my mom went through this and it was really hard, but I saw that she got through it. And so I know that I can change or I know that I can grow or I know that I can change my mind. And so we can start to think about what gifts do I want to give my children, even when my kid is uh, for like if I leave the house and some of my kids are sad and crying or they want me to stay home, but I haven't left the house in two weeks, I need to get out. I think in my mind, this is a gift to my daughters so that they know when they have kids, they're still allowed to leave the house and have friends like that's they still need to be a person. And so if you can start to think about your actions as gifts that maybe they don't get right now, but at some point they're going to be in a phase of their life where they feel disconnected or they they change paths or they change identities. Um, you being honest and authentic through your journey can at least make them not feel so alone in that, which is why we actually don't need perfect mothers and we don't need perfect fathers because when they go through that, when they get older, the perfect mother or father can't do anything for them because, because they're not going through an identity crisis or they're not going through a divorce or whatever it is that they're yeah. going to go through. So we can start to really think about how, how am I parenting in a way that's giving gifts instead of am I 
leading the way, which can be a, a shift when you're talking about, you know, Mormon parenting or post-Mormon parenting. And I think there's a sense um, when you step away from Mormonism that you can't ever let anybody see that you're trying to figure things out. It, you have to look perfect. <laughs> you have to have it down. You have to have it's it so right frustrating. in front of your kids or your friends. And so, yeah, that's exactly right. But you it's really frustrating because way. the Mormons are pretending that they're happy because they yeah. have to pretend that it's yeah. that it's true and it's making them happy. Yeah. But the ex-Mormons do it too because the ex-Mormons have to prove that like I'm right and it's so much yeah. better out here. And we're yeah. all just pretending to each other. Yeah. that we're happy. I know like really, no, that's exactly it. <laughs> Mormons are struggling and they have a shelf and ex-Mormons are struggling because they're trying to replace everything that Mormonism was doing for them. And yep. we kind of sometimes just got to be honest that like, Hey, yep. it's hard. Like we got to stop yep. trying to one up each other's happiness. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. <laughs> No, that you you've hit it on the head, but you said right there. I think that'll be a short lander. Remind us to cut it at whatever minute that is, because no, you've you've stated it absolutely perfect. That's that's exactly it. And you have this pressure that you can't ever let anybody feel like, oh, I'm just trying to figure this out, you know. And it doesn't let you be very authentic on either mm-hmm. way. Sometimes even on our podcast, Mormonish, Landon and I will will talk about the good old days of the youth programs when we were young, mm-hmm. you know, the 70s and 80s, and we did have wonderful community and we did have a lot of fun. Sometimes people will make comments, yeah, but all the horrible things were happening. You know, you almost feel like you have to completely throw everything away instead yeah. of looking at that and going, I, I did have that. I'm trying to recreate that or repurpose that or figure yeah. out what to do. There's so you lot- have to own all parts, I think. Yeah. And that's, that's when you really move into complexity because sometimes mm-hmm. our first jump into ex-Mormonism, we're really jumping into the religion of ex-Mormonism, which is these are the podcasts. These are the voices. Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. the narratives. All church was crap. Mm-hmm. And you get, you kind of hop into a new binary because you haven't deconstructed all your Mormon thought processes yet. So you've, you've left the doctrine, you've left Mormonism, you've left the church but your brain is still looking for just another religion or another narrative to plug into your religion brain. And, and so it takes a lot longer to deconstruct that than people realize you don't deconstruct. I mean, it's hard to, to do all the work to, okay, I'm going to do the book of Abraham deconstruction. I'm going to do the polygamy deconstruction. All (laughs) that is hard. But to me, where it really gets hard is, okay, I've deconstructed the beliefs, but my thought patterns are still Mormon. And I'm still doing Mormonism and ex-Mormonism, which means I'm still making this a religion where where it lacks nuance and complexity. And we see this with a ton of post-Mormon Facebook groups where after a few years, they'll implode because they become so strident that this is the narrative that when someone says good old days, everybody freaks out because that's not an allowed narrative. And then you get excommunicated from ex-Mormonism and it's ridiculous. So we have to, we (laughs) have to outgrow. (laughs) Yeah. So you not only have to like walk out of the church, you have to decult, you have to think of, you have to rethink your, your thought processes Mm -hmm. and start to do some of that work or else you're likely to just jump into a new religion, whether it be CrossFit or wellness culture or Mm -hmm. ex-Mormonism or Mm -hmm. the witchy world. Uh, If you don't, deconstruct your thought processes, then you're just going to be a Mormon in that new narrative. You're just, you're just hopping from one place to the next. That's why we call our program Mormonish because you can't, you can't unbecome Mormon. (laughs) It's part of you. It will always be part of you. It's how you grew up, what you grew up into. So you'll always have that part of you and you have to learn to, to accept both sides, I think. 
Mm. How would you, how would you even begin to deconstruct your own thought process? And I know it's a lot, I mean, you're a coach, which is wonderful. And I'm sure you help so many people. Are there any beginner steps that I guess maybe recognizing that you still have that thought process processes, maybe the first step, try to outthink your brain on it. But I'm just wondering if there's anything yeah. you can tell us about that, because you're right. You jump right into that. And it is the religion of ex-Mormonism. We've seen that over and over to different degrees. Yeah. The two things that I would kind of say here, since it's so individual yes. um, when you're doing it with coaching, there's one recess that resource that I really love that I'm just going to recommend. It's called Unfuck Your Brain. And it's this <laughs> lovely um, Harvard grad, just super smart coach who just really understands brain biases. And it really helps you, especially if you're a woman who was raised in patriarchy. There's so much internalized patriarchy. There's so much internalized imposter syndrome or um how you should parent mom guilt all these things and um that resource has been really fantastic for a lot of my clients including myself for really looking at your brain and brain biases however you do that i really like this lady over here because she she really helps unpack patriarchy especially but um really learning about brain biases, I think is helpful for understanding why is my brain doing this? What, what even is my brain doing? And once you learn why brains do what they do, you can start to get your brain working for you rather than against you. And this is a big shift when you're doing a deconstruction process is for a while, your brain's going to be working against you because you have all these guilt narratives. You have all these, if I take one more step, I'm going to lose my eternal family, right? You've got a it's a big mess in your brain. And you also don't even really understand why your brain works or how it works. So we have 144 brain biases. We're still cataloging new ones. And at least learning like the 20 or 30 kind of main ones that really drive how we think. And then looking at it and looking how those thought processes and those biases were formed in Mormonism can at least help you to understand what is my lens that I'm the way that I'm seeing the world and how can I adjust these biases or think new thoughts on purpose in order to get my brain working for me rather than against me because so many people are trying to deconstruct but their brain is just making it harder so we've got to look at why that is and and starting with brain biases is a great place to start another place to look at it is just really um looking at where you're stuck because often where you're stuck there's an old thought process there which is you have a thought, you have a feeling, you have an action, you have a result. And if you're stuck, it means that there's some thought loop going on there that is not letting you go forward, is still part of your old brain. And so if we can name that thought and name that feeling and name that action and name that result that you usually do that you were raised with, now we can say, okay, what's a thought that you can believe on purpose? And not a unicorns and rainbows one. It's just one that you can believe. What's the feeling that you feel with this new thought? Then what is the action and result that comes from this new thought and feeling? And that's when you start to shift your brain into having it work for you rather than against you. So brain biases, and then really looking at where you're stuck and what's the thought there that's keeping you stuck. Oh, that is so good. We're going to put links to all the books that we've been mentioning here. <laughs> We're kind of melding book club and Mormonish on this one. So, but I think about how the church, I think the church uh, makes you ignore your brain altogether. Landon and I have been talking about this. It's all feeling. It's all mm, feeling. Yeah. And if you do have a thought pop into your brain, it's Satan 
or it's God. Which or is so weird. Which is so weird. And it's then, so weird now, like on the outside, like yeah. me and a demon put a thought in my yeah. head. So it's strange. terrifying to a kid to not have control or autonomy of your brain. You know, oh, that was the Holy Ghost. Wait, isn't it me? You know, and then what they do uh, put in your brain are all these rote concepts and these memorized functions and these statements and ideas and narratives. That's what's there. That's what exists. And to me, I don't know, it's so unhealthy. And I can understand why on the other side of it, your your brain, your Mormon brain is still ticking. I think it's your in Mormon there, brain is still like ticking. A lizard yeah. brain. Absolutely. And until you realize it, um, I think that that you'll never get out of those loops. So boy, this is this has been revol- yeah. revolutionary. And, for and me your to brain realize this. Yeah. And your brain is going to make it harder for you if you don't kind of go back to those thought patterns that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, because then your brain's just really working against you and just making it hard. I mean, it's just so busy. I mean, how much time do, when you were a Mormon, did you spend in prayer thinking, well, that what was that my thought or was that Satan's thought or was that exactly. God's thought? Is that yes. inspiration? Is that not? Oh my yep. God, so much, it's yep. so much. And it's, it's so busy in your brain. And then you have so much guilt and you have so much pain and you have intergenerational pain sometimes that you're tapping into. And it's so... And, and even just losing your anchor psychologically is so hard for a brain, which is why brains work so hard to keep things black and white because you make decisions, because you get out of the cave, because you do things without getting paralyzed with too many choices and too many options. So once you learn kind of your own brain, brains in general, and then your own brain landscape, that's when you can start to tinker with your own brain, which has been a really fun part of the journey. I think that's that's when you start to see real a, a lot of real progress, because now you're starting to, to tinker with your brain itself to get it to be a, a place that you want to hang out in because you spent a lot of time in your brain. Well, that's That's <laughs> been one of the greatest blessings for me of post-Mormonism is is that I own my brain. I own the decisions. I own what I do. It's it's me. There's no God. There's no uh, Holy Ghost. Uh, there's no revelation coming. It's it's my thoughts, my actions. I I have to own it. And to me, that's been been a great blessing. But I did want to ask you because you just talked about you know intergenerational. Um, uh, we one of the things as we talk about sapiens is you know myth is something that that really uh, unites society together and and for millennia religion has been kind of that pillar that myth that has hold up s- the societies and civilizations and that's why you know most civilizations have a the same religion that's that's the myth that makes them all work together to accomplish what they accomplish. With the loss of that in this generation, um, what replaces that and what myth do you see coming forward in the future of religion with religion, you know, on the decline that's going to step in and fill that myth that keeps people working uh, together? Yeah, there's some good news, bad news here with this one or or some (laughs) some hard things. So you're right. So once we get to 150 people mm-hmm. below that, it's gossip can keep the group together. More than that, you need a myth. And you can do myths that are um, not especially supernatural. So we have a myth that the age of consent should be 18. Okay. That, I mean, that's a myth that we're agreeing to. Evolution doesn't care. Evolution probably wants you having sex when you're 14 because, you know, that that works for evolution. So there's a lot of things that we do socially um, that are shared myths that I think are perfectly fine. The 
the idea that this piece of paper with George Washington on it means something is a shared myth that allows us to trade. That's great. That's great for society. That's great. Um, and so there's a lot of little things that you can do as shared myths. You can do humanist shared myths. You can do, we can make the world a better place. There's political shared myths. There's communal shared myths. There's family shared myths. There's there's um, lots of things on offer that can still make for a functioning society that don't need the supernatural element. However, the problem that we're coming up on, and this is a problem that I think a lot about, this is the, these are this is the question that I spend a lot of time at night thinking about is that we're coming up on on a problem here which is that when you get a strong supernatural myth that you really buy into something like mormonism it creates so much resources and time and communal bonds that uh, a looser myth cannot compete with so i know thousands of people who have come to me and said, if there was just a church on the corner that talked about being a good person and they taught my kids normal moral values and there was no, you know, closed door with the bishop sexual question stuff going on. And we just did some acts of service and, and we sang hymns that were like not terrifying. And why can't there be a church like that? And the reality is, Without a myth that taps into all those brain biases that just makes us go kind of haywire for the religion. I mean, we're really wired for cults. We are. Mm -hmm. So if you if it's not a cult level kind of myth, then it's not going to produce the kind of time, money and resources to create a church on every corner. And so the the harsh reality of this is that I don't think there's ever going to be a secular humanist preschool that you take their kids to you're either going to have a, a you know a generic public preschool private preschool or the churches those are always going to be the options because there's never going to be enough money in secular humanism as a myth to tap into your cult brain to get you to donate half your money to it to get the church built to get the primary teacher in there to do whatever and so that's what we're coming up against is that I don't think that this is going to be a thing where, oh, there used to be the Catholic Church and now we have all these kind of secular churches that do all this. I've seen, I've watched maybe 150 of these churches try to do this, try to do the church that everybody wants. And it's not sticky enough. It's not culty enough that people just start saying, well, I should go but the game's on. I'm just going to stay yeah. home and watch the game. Yeah. And when within a few years, all of these churches die. And so the reality is there may always be a culty matrix in society because our brains are so wired for cults. And so if you want to do something different, it may be a more individual game. And that's scary and that can be overwhelming. And, and, but that for me, I mean, I've been watching this a long time. That seems to be a harsh reality that we're coming up against. And so I think if we're going to do this, it's going to be locally, it's going to be individually. So for me, I, I have a spiritual kind of environment in my home. I have my post-Mormon group. It's my community. When my daughter had an accident last year, they brought meals. They did all the things that Mormons would do. I mean, it was a sustaining community. I, I try to find something for each of my kids. So my daughters in Girl Scouts and my sons in karate. 
And so it's very individual to me and my community and my family, but I had to build it. So I think the, the reality is either you walk into a church to do all it for you and it's not going to be authentic to you and you got to find some way to make that work or you're going to have to do this work on your own. And it's I know that that's kind of hard and overwhelming sometimes for people to hear, but it is so possible. It is possible to look at all these aspects of spirituality and say, how could we approach this in a way that's authentic to you and build it in your life? But I think it's going to be an individual game more than a community game because, because the cult always wins. It makes more money and more babies and more resources and more buildings. And on the large scale, the cult wins. I mean, look at any indigenous people in the world who had healthier spirituality and healthier communities and healthier matriarchy matriarchies they all got pushed around by a cult that was bigger and cultier than them. And that's kind of the harsh reality here. And so I, I think a lot of this has to be done individually, but there are tools to help you do that easier so that you can build that into your life. And it's so much better. It's so much better to authentically create a life that's worth living for you and what that looks like than to walk into a church and have to try to adjust in a million ways to make it work. That kind of raises to me the question is, is that sustainable to have a lot of individuals? Because like you said, the cult groups will be so overwhelming that they'll keep coming. Uh, and we've seen this with, well, just recently in the temple things that we've been doing, yeah. you know, uh, everybody goes to the county planning and the church has, you know, ice cream truck shows up, they serve pizza, they have 5,000 people there. And yes. the people that are out there going, I'd want to look at the night sky or just completely overwhelmed yeah. by yeah. this culty group that is all there going, I feel I must the, have a temple. Yeah. So, the good thing is once you start to get individuals who are saying, okay, I have to create community because one doesn't exist that I can just walk into authentically anymore. What happens is then when you get a lot of people doing that and people making their life more more worth living, they're trying to get they're trying to create community, they're trying to make greater connections, then you get start to get a lot of more local options. So there's a lot of people who are doing amazing things and creating communities. There's sound bath communities, there's the hiking community, there's the cold plunge community. These are all spiritual. There's um there's the kind of taekwondo, especially for men, is 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 really uh, expanding because this is a place where men can be men with each other, which is so lacking. Some of this is is even harder for men than for women because when men leave the church, that may be this only socially acceptable place for them to cry or talk about being a husband and father, whereas women can replace that socially often with other women. And so even though there's a gap, like we're in a gap right now where people are having to figure out this on their own. The positive thing is once a bunch of people are working on this project, now you got this Taekwondo men community that is just thriving that you can go to. Now you have this hiking group or this meditation group or this Sangha or this, I mean, there's so many, because this is what everybody's needing. Now we're starting to see a lot more options. And so that is a positive thing where, where, even though this is a little bit more of an individual game right now, uh, there are starting to be a lot of options because everybody needs community. And so people are trying to create it. So it, it, it's more of a ground up 
kind of movement than a top-down, let's create secular humanism, Catholicism, which I just don't think ever is going to work. It's not, it's not a culty enough myth to do something. So it's got to be kind of from the local up. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And in your TikTok, one of them that I listened to today, I hadn't thought of this before, but you said, since we are so hardwired to follow the myth, follow the cult, um, sometimes you were especially, I think, talking about uh, Gen Z, you follow, you know, you go to some places where maybe it isn't the best thing for you. You had mentioned some of those things. You get really involved. I don't know, fringe groups, actual cults. I mean, what are some of the, the dangers of being so hardwired to try to follow um, the myth? Yeah. And and for people, for kids and for people mm-hmm. who need more order and structure, like some people need a higher um, psychological need of closure than other people. Mm-hmm. And those people tend to be more fundamentalist because they just need more psychological order in order to function. And so when you're in this need, uh, something that's really tempting to do is fall for the first person who looks confident enough to say, here's a path, I've made it for you. You don't need to think anymore. Here are the 12 steps. Here are the eight steps. Here's the eightfold path. Here's the 12 step program, blah, blah, blah. And so it can be tempting to fall into basically anyone who promises um, an easy way of life, right? Or an easy path. And so you really have to be aware of your tendency to make people into prophets because sometimes what happens in the ex Mormon community is we act as if if all the prophets and all the cult leaders and all the political leaders died tomorrow, we'd all be free. But the reality is we would recreate them tomorrow. If, 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 if the, the, you know, Mormonism, if all the leaders were just like bombed in some horrific accident, we would recreate them tomorrow. We would, I mean, because we're craving for someone to give us something. And so what we need to do to resist that is to um, learn how to sit with uncertainty and learn how to tap into your own intuition, learn how to get advice, learn how to do critical thinking. So once you learn how to sit with uncertainty, once then you're not so prey to someone promising you certainty because you don't have that fear anymore. You're not driven by it. And so a lot of it is doing the internal work of de-culting so you're not susceptible to every Trump kind of character who promises you, you know, just, just follow me and blah, blah, blah. Um, because this is what Nietzsche predicted. So Nietzsche, who spent a lot of time studying nihilism in the void, predicted that once people are leaving organized religion, and he knew that that was going to happen 200 years ago, um, once people leave organized religion and people start to be nihilistic, what we're going to find is political gods. And I think he's right. I think I think we are starting to see some political gods who are doing the same thing that religions used to do for us. And so this is this is a big fear, especially for Gen Z, is, is the political activism that they're doing for spirituality is really cool to see. It's really awesome. It's definitely a path of spirituality. But I am wary that sometimes the political God or the political ism becomes their new religion because we're wired for it. So so essentially, we all have to uncult and decult and learn how to sit with our feelings and learn how to sit with uncertainty and um, in order to not be susceptible to whatever's out there that's going to promise your perfectly happy life. 
Yeah, we're human beings and that's what we want. <laughs> we want to be certain. We want to be where we're supposed to be. We want to follow the group. We want to be part of the myth. It's really hard to get around that because that's just- It's really hard. But fun. under that is always feelings. Under that is a fear oh, yeah. that you don't want to feel. Under that is a loneliness that you don't want to feel. So you contort yourself to fit the group. Under that is uncertainty that you don't want to feel. So a lot of this is- is as Gen Z is going to therapy more than any other generation, and they're talking about therapy and they're talking about emotional um, coping mechanisms and coping skills. What I'm hoping is that by them leading the way and doing that, that they are actually getting to the root of the problem, which is learning how to sit with their feelings. And that's how we unravel this, is that people who have better emotional coping skills don't turn to cult leaders so that they don't have to feel feelings because they've learned how to sit with their own feelings. And so that that part of Gen Z I'm really hopeful for because they are going to therapy and they are talking about emotional coping skills because they don't have those little religion pills that we used to have grandma's in heaven. Now we just take that little pill yeah. at the funeral. Don't have to feel anything. Yeah. If they don't have that, they have to find other coping skills. And that's where we're actually seeing some really positive things from Gen Z. Wow. What a concept. What else? That's exactly yeah. right. No, I, I'm just thinking about how the different generations, you know, like for example, you come home from world war two and you just say, not thinking about that anymore, just moving on. Mm. You know, gonna go to church, have a family. You know, you just repress and you put mm. down and you just cope. And now that gives you a lot of hope for Gen Z, honestly. Yeah. I mean, they're crazy, they're quirky. We're trying to understand <laughs> them. They're our kids, but a bigger, brighter future, I think so. And then Alpha, that's what's next, right? I yeah. It's just crazy but what could, that. yeah, what could Gen Z do when they're 40 and 50, yeah. when they have collectively learned how to sit with their yes. feelings? That's yeah. something that's hopeful because no other generation has had to sit down and feel their fucking feelings. Like there it is. Everybody that's else, <laughs> everybody else put on the happy face and put yeah. on the mask till they died yes. of heart disease because they were so stressed. Exactly. They had so much PTSD and they were so, you know, they were so isolated. So yeah. they're dealing with a lot, but, uh, yeah. but uh, that part is, is hopeful for me that, that they'll be able to be hopefully less drawn in by some of these demagogue and, and culty things because they've learned how to sit with their feelings. Yeah. Do, do you see this universally uh, across the globe, across the different cultures, or is this more of a, uh, an American thing. I, I do a lot of work over in Asia and I know, uh, you know, materialism is very big over there. It's like everyone shops. That's, you know, you go to school and you shop. That seems mm. to kind of be what what I see from the youth. Do you see it different um, amongst the different uh, cultures or is? Yeah, it's, it's different. I mean, we're close, <clears throat> excuse me, we're closest to, you know, Western Europe because they secularized after World War II because essentially, the feeling was, um, where, where was God, you know, where was God in all of this? And so there was this huge secular turn after world war II that we didn't get until later, really. Cause we just didn't experience the atrocities of war on our home turf. Right. And so our secularism journey is different than Western Europe. So we're really a unique case because in America, you have this growing, uh, group of nuns that, you know, they don't, identify as religious, 
but then you have this really strong brand of fundamentalism and you have a strong Christian white nationalistic right wing, which it actually is unique globally to have somehow this homeless radical Jew becomes this second amendment Republican character (laughs) by ways I don't even know how sometimes like Democrat Jesus and Republican Jesus are two of the most different people you'll ever hear about. Somehow they're based on the same person. Um, So yeah, America is, is a unique case in just our fundamentalist brand of Christianity, that strong right wing. And so you have a couple of different elements going on. Whereas, you know, the Nordic countries are just more secular in general, but they don't have that fundamentalist brand that's really fighting against it. Because right now we have this, the atheist caused the fundamentalist to go even stronger. And then the mm-hmm. fundamentalist response caused the atheist to just go fucking crazy. And they, you know, it, we escalate each other. Yep. And so in the Western countries, there, there are problems with secularizing. There are problems, you know, with depression and community and things that we're seeing in other Western countries, but that you don't have the quite the dynamic that we have in America. So I, I would say that, that although other Western, you know, Western based um, and Western European nations are secularizing. America is a unique case because we have such a strong, still religious presence um, in the midst of that, and we're escalating each other. You described it right there. No, I, that is a hot topic. We're actually doing a podcast later this week about white uh, Mormon Christian nationalism because it's mm. baked in, I think, to Mormonism. And I see that it there. was. Like anyone who says like, that's not a real thing. I mean, there were genuine calls for theocracy in the last Republican National Convention, um, which is really interesting to watch. And as a, as a, I was a history teacher before I started kind of doing this full time. And it's, it's really interesting, the narratives from the Christian right around the founding fathers, because these founding fathers were people who just tried so bad to separate church and religion. They were deists. They weren't even yes. Christian, right? Yes. And so <laughs> and they do, they didn't want to do in God we trust. You know, we added yeah. that later. They didn't want any of that. And so now we have this, you know, founding fathers narrative to try to create theocracy, which is the very opposite of what they wanted. And um, really behind all of that, on the right is really just this fear of chaos. And so you have the nationalism and you have the religion because it feels safe. Um, And so I I really think that the more there's kind of this chaos of the unknown that's happening as people are deconstructing, that's where even with your sons, there may have been an aspect of that where if there's chaos, you're gonna want to cling to order. Mm -hmm. And if Mormonism was your order, you're gonna cling to that because life felt chaotic. And so one of the best things that you can do individually and communally when you're having this cling to order response is to order the chaos a little bit as parents, or, you know, if, if we're talking about politically, if the left were to order itself a little bit, so it's not quite so chaotic, it would actually calm down some of the clinging to order response that you get from the right, where they want to go back to the 1950s, which is like, okay, back when that only worked for one kind of person. And that's right. We could get them both to and agree not with everybody land. else. We That's landed right. right in the middle of the 80s, which was the best which time ever. Which was the perfect decade, right? <laughs> so. No, that's that's such a good takeaway from this 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 discussion too, and and I think back to just an hour ago when you talked about your husband. Once he saw mm. order 
in your chaos because that's a fear. People say, well, what are you going to do now that you left? What's going to happen? What are you going to be doing? It's going to be chaotic. And frankly, post-Mormons sometimes uh, validate that by doing some things that are kind of while we're trying to figure it out. You've got a tattoo. You're drinking coffee. What? You tried mushrooms? So, but then when you said when you were able to create some order, show them, no, I know what I'm doing. Here it is. Let's work on this together. And I'm, yeah, I'm not in in the 100%. Like I'm not in the shame game. But in talking with Mormon therapists in the area, and I always talk to them, like, what are you seeing? What's going on? Everybody's saying, okay, the second that a couple leaves Mormonism, they want to do mushrooms and open their marriage. And it's like, can we (laughs) hold on, hold on, hold on before we just break open, Yeah, you know, because mushrooms is like very paradigm changing. And then opening your marriage, like you're going to go from no sexual education. You don't even know the concepts of like positive sexuality. And you're going to jump into making out with each other in hot tubs, which happens sometimes in post Mormon communities. So yeah, it's, it's not a shame thing because I understand a lot of us have a lot of sexual repression exactly. that was just kind of bursting mm-hmm. out. But uh, if you, especially if you have a partner who's terrified of this chaos mm-hmm. or ordering your chaos a little bit can actually help lower the temperature of these fears, because we have this fear that if I drink coffee, then da, 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 heroin addict, like mm-hmm. that's the, that's <laughs> yeah, the that fear. fast, literally. And that's so once fear. my husband saw like, <laughs> oh, not heroin addicts, like she's functioning. This is a really beautiful thing she's doing in our home. Like our Sundays, like we were doing every other Sunday and, and he started to see that the Sundays that I was doing with the kids, that, that was just, was so much more positive than the kids coming home from church and just hating it. So I really do with every client that I work with, I see where they are on the spectrum of order and chaos because too much order is fundamentalism and it's suffocating and it's dangerous and it's dangerous for everyone, but too much chaos is paralyzing and you, you can die out there too. People die out there. People commit suicide. We, t- mm-hmm. we talk about um, Roy Jeffs who Lindsay Hanson Park talks about a lot who left Warren Jeffs and we rescued him out of this terrible situation, but he committed suicide after that. Like he couldn't handle the chaos out here. Like he couldn't, he wasn't, people die out there in the void and I don't want that to happen either. So we have to be centered in between order and chaos where you have some kind of order so that you can psychologically function, but there's room to grow. There's room to still chaos. Um, otherwise we're psychologically in a dangerous place. That is absolutely true. So I would ask you this since, oh my gosh, you're so brilliant. And you so much good stuff to say. So we're, um, going into the holidays right now, right? It seems mm. to me that everything is exasperated right now. The loss of ritual, the perhaps delving into the chaos to deal with the pain that you're going to be seeing family and they're not going to accept you. Do you have any thoughts on just, and you probably talked to clients about this, how do you deal with the next two months as somebody mm. that's reconstructing, deconstructing, interacting with family? You know, what about the myths? What are your own myths? What, what do you have any... Let me put it simply. Do you have any advice for viewers over the because we're gonna we're gonna air this yeah. very soon here as we go into this couple months and you just talk to people and everyone has a variety of scenarios and questions, but it just seems like a difficult time, especially for a post Mormon. It's difficult. Chris, Christmas for the first couple of years was really difficult for me, um, because you you just don't know what to do and there's so much stuff to sort through. It's like it's like you're in a hoarder house and there's a million heirlooms on the floor and you have to sit and sort through like junk, repurpose, 
I want to keep this. And that just takes time and it takes emotional energy. So it's hard. And it's definitely okay to say, all I'm doing this Christmas is I really like to listen to Mannheim Steamroller. And that's all that I have space for. And you just, it's okay to like not have to figure out where you're at with everything right now, right? <laughs> we can give ourselves the permission to grow and change because it took a long time for you to grow into to grow a Mormon brain. And it takes some time to deconstruct that and relearn yourself and do all the things. So it is totally okay to say, the only thing that I like about Christmas is the smell of this candle. And that is all that I have space for. Like it, that's okay. You can give yourself that permission. Above that, if you want to take on more here, uh, something that is really, really helpful is finding ways to connect around ego. So when we're talking about family, if you're the person who's deconstructed, your ego is a black hole need for validation because you want someone to see you and you want someone to hear your story and you want someone to validate you and say, that was so hard or you were so brave or I, I still love you or I still respect you. Whatever you're wanting to hear, your ego is just this black hole need of validation. But for the person who's still in, their egos, I would say even subconsciously, senses that there's something about you that's dangerous. There's something going on over there that is dangerous to my sense of identity and all of my order and structure and all of my psychological safety. So therefore, their ego's job is instant defense. They go into defense mode and they don't know that they're doing it, right? Because you, as Mormons, you don't even know this part, that there's parts of your brain, right? And uh, that you have this default mode network that's like your ego. So they're doing that. They don't even know that they're doing that. And so you put these two people together, one who is just instant defense and the other who's like, validate me. And those two people are just going to clash. And both people are going to go away feeling like I love this person, but I can't connect with her or I can't connect with them. And it hurts both people. So what I really recommend is, is there a way that you can talk around each other's ego? So if you're the deconstructed person, because you're the person learning about the brain, then is there something that you can say where you can calm down their ego that's wanting to play defense so you can connect human to human again? And there's lots of ways that you can do that. You can say, you know, sometimes I really struggle with my faith. I'm, I'm, I'm really um, wrestling with it, but I really love the story about Jesus, or I really love um, a lot of the ways that I was raised mom and dad. And, you know, sometimes Jesus, he had to flip tables in the institution because he was bothered by something. And there's some things that are really bothering me, but I still love the stories of Jesus that you taught me, or I still value the moral integrity that you guys tried to teach me, whatever it is that you can say, honestly, is there a way that you can calm down their ego that's re ready to play defense and actually connect human to human and make a safe space for that kind of connection. And you can do that with people. And you can also do that with ideas. When I'm at a Mormon funeral, for example, that I still, I still have family. I still go to these things. If someone is talking about, um, how much they want to be sure that there's an afterlife. If I, if I'm in my logic brain, who's just feeling grumpy about everything and feeling snarky, I can just be talking about how, what they said is so dumb. But if I were to take a second and look at this person as a human, just like me, 
who's doing their best, just like me, you can tell that this person's afraid of death and that what they're doing is coping in light of their fear of death and their loss of someone. Now that as a human, I can relate to. I fear death sometimes too. I sometimes use coping mechanisms for my feelings. Like I take a little gummy from Oregon sometimes to calm down at night because I'm co- that's my coping sometimes. So if they are just afraid of death and they're coping or it's Christmas time and people want to feel hopeful that the world is going to get better, I can meet that. There's a lot of things that you can meet human to human when you take ego out of it. And so I really encourage that approach with people, with family members, but also when you find yourself in a church building or when you are uh, singing hymns or Christmas songs, there's a lot of this stuff that is just human nature trying to be hopeful or trying to put words to the transcendent or trying to put words to awe or trying to, or, or there's something really beautiful even about a story about a God being born in a manger, that, that if there was a God, if there was something that was extra special in this world, it would be born in simple circumstances. And it would be a person who's homeless, who tr- just tried to teach people about love. There's something beautiful about that still to me. So there's a lot of these concepts that we can meet at a deeper level, human to human, that allows you to reconnect to your Mormon family and friends, to Mormon events, to Christian events, without you being inauthentic at all, where you don't have to say things that you don't believe. You don't have to agree with things that you don't believe. But But the person is a person just like you. And they're human just like you. And everything that you recognize in them that you don't like is something that you recognize in yourself that you don't like. That's what shadow work is. So is there a way that you can drop down to a level where this is a human and can you meet it at some way that's authentic? So there are many things around Christmas that I don't do anymore because of my own beliefs, but there's a lot of things that I can meet because it's just human nature and I'm human too. And I do still try to connect to those things. And that helps me feel not so isolated um, and also helps me to kind of navigate the holidays So that would be where I would go with that. Yeah, no, that's wonderful because it is, it's so complex. And like, for example, I love manger scenes. I have them all over my house. You know, the little figures, I still love those. That's great. Guilty at the Mm. beginning of deconstruction. I felt guilty putting them out because I thought, what am I doing? I've deconstructed Mormonism. I've certainly deconstructed Christianity. Why do I love this? Why do I like to put this? It's still a beautiful story. story. It's a beautiful human story. And that's kind of what I arrived at, you know, but then I'll have people come over and they're like, why do you have that? You don't believe. I'm like, but it is a human story. So that's when you, that's when you jump into like, what's really fun. So after in the beginning of deconstruction, some of something like a manger or something like a song can really trigger you like, ah, I don't believe this. And you get all this cognitive dissonance in your body. But once you really kind of deconstruct everything and finish that process, you can go back to these places as places to play. And this is what mystics do in any religion, which is why I still really love hanging out with mystics because they all speak the same language. Atheist mystics, mushroom mystics, Christian mystics, Sufi mystics, I hang out with all of them. They're all saying the same things, which is there's something happening here that's beautiful. Can we go back to these stories to play, to learn about ourselves? There's something interesting here. There's inner work that we can do with these stories. And mystics don't ever take these stories as capital T true. That's what religions do. The mystics don't play that game. This is, these stories are 
are somehow how we're playing because we're projecting something. It's like this mirror that we're projecting out in order to look back at ourselves to figure out what we are. And that's when you can go back into something like the story of Christmas and, and find a place to play that's really still beautiful. It takes some time and takes some healing to go to, to be able to shift into play, but that's when you can start playing with myths rather than being controlled by myths or being so aversive by myths that you can't function in society because everything's a myth and George Washington right. and the cherry <laughs> tree. I mean, it's all myth. Everything is right. myth. But then once you kind of accept that and shift into it, you can return to the myths as places to play and grow and explore and discover. And that's when it becomes fun again. Oh, I just love that. It's a wonderful way that you don't have to throw everything away because no, I think you don't have people to feel that way. And then you're even yes. further into the void. I mean, yes. you're inside the void, inside the void. Yeah. So, oh, this is just amazing. Landon, do you have any final questions or final thoughts? And then I think we'll just finally ask Britt, you know, what her next projects are, what she's doing and let her tell us, you know, how we can, how all of our viewers and listeners can access her. Any other thoughts, Landon? This has just been wonderful. Uh, just Brittany, uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, I really enjoyed, and as I watched your videos, I really enjoyed the the things that I was seeing there and the things that you're saying. Uh, you're certainly a place I can point my children to yes. as a resource for, mm -hmm. you know, now that they're out and they're looking for how do I raise my family? Because the map you gave me, dad, is now crumbled up and on the floor. <laughs> so I need to create my own map. So uh, I, I think you do that. And, and I I, I think you're a great resource for people to look to. I appreciate that. I, um, It's really strange to be here now because when I deconstructed 13 years ago, I really felt like I was the only Mormon in the history of Mormonism to go to church and not believe anymore. Like I genuinely thought yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like it was so isolating. And then the time, and then when I started to be honest about deconstruction, like, Hey, I'm not thriving out here. Like I'm not doing great. Like I'm kind of psychologically unhinging here. And when I started to be honest with that, I didn't know if anybody else was experiencing that too, because so many ex-Mormons either are, or they appear to just be like, Oh, freedom. And then they just, they're off and running and they're doing great. That was not me. I was not great. <laughs> I, I struggled. I struggled a lot. Um, but it's part of my own kind of meaning and purpose that I've built into my own life to help people in places where I got stuck. And so it still surprises me that anyone resonates with anything that I say, because there were years of my life where I thought I'm the only one who thinks this, or I'm the only one who's going through this. And that's, it's such a lie because everybody's goes through hard things and being honest about it just really helps everyone. So it was when I was brave enough to start to be honest about my thoughts or my approach or my life or what I was struggling with that I started to resonate with people. And so if you're in that spot where you feel like I don't have any friends and I'm all alone, um, just know like I, I was there too. Like I, I didn't even think that I'd be having this conversation someday. But one of the great things about going through a deconstruction, especially one that that um, challenges your identity where you, your identity dies is that it can help you give you the courage to be vulnerable. And when you learn how to be vulnerable and to share your story um, and to relate to people and to talk to people. And now I have more friends than I have time for. And I didn't know that I would ever be here. Um, so all of the, all of the problems of deconstruction, all the 
things that make it hard, like facing death and meaninglessness and isolation and feeling alone and identity death and ego death. If you're there and it just feels like it all sucks, all of these things are enemies that can become friends because they change you in a way that can create your authentic life. And so if you're listening to this and you're in it, hang in there. And then on my website, I have as many resources as I can to help you. I have a two-year podcast that I did with Bill Real. So I have free podcast content. I have my TikTok channel. I have a course. Um, I have a couple courses. I have a nihilism course, which is all of my tools that I use for clients who are really stuck in the void. I have a deconstruction course. I have a reconstruction course. And I also have, which is kind of particular to this conversation, I have a Gen Z spirituality course that I spent a lot of time on where I have about five or 10 minute videos. They're very short, right? Gen Z, they don't want to hear me talk for two hours. Very short um, videos on concepts in spirituality. Like what is the science of awe? What is the science of rituals? What is the science of connection? And then giving them options and then really allowing this discussion, especially in families for you to say, I've felt this before. It was when I was at the Grand Canyon or I felt this before. It was when I sit after a long run and I'm just sitting out in nature. That's how I feel this. And it can start to actually cultivate these conversations in families where um, spirituality is part of of the family dynamic and the family conversation where you can start to ask kids how have you felt this and then they can get a sense of what their own spiritual path looks like so it's a whole program of all the aspects of spirituality that are good for mental health and it's not a this is the way this is the path right it's a Here's the science. Here's why it's good for you. Here's a bunch of options of what it looks like in people's life. What does it look like for you? It's a lot of that. And so that's also a helpful program um, for people who feel like they want to start structuring these conversations with their children. And I'll just keep doing this work because it's just part of my own meaning and purpose in life. And I just really love anywhere on this line of, of deconstruction and reconstruction because it's just where... I spent the most time and it's where I cried the most tears. And so it's where I want to hang out the most. Oh, that's just wonderful. And thank you for sharing the information about all your different, the assets that you have that can help people and support people. So we'll definitely put links to everything we talked about in all of our show notes. And, and I would say to your viewers, you know, if you are to our viewers, if you don't have the younger children, I'm sure you know someone who does. And so please pass this information on because to me, it's that time sensitive issue. Had I had this 10 years ago for my own kids, I would be in a different position right now if I could have found something like this. And so and not to sound like that's a, you know, a doomsday thing or a warning, but it is so important and it's important in a certain, you know, time frame for different people. So I would encourage all of our viewers and listeners, please check out her wonderful resources. We're so thankful that uh, Britt was on with us. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, like I said, we'll have links to the books and then we'll have to rewatch the episode, Landon, to, to cover all the things that we talked about. We talked about so many books and wonderful things that we always get those notes afterwards. Or where can I find that? You talked about that, which is, it's great. It makes it such a good dialogue. So thank you again for being on and for our listeners and viewers, um, please like, and subscribe. And if you'd like to know when new episodes of Mormonish comes out, you can hit that notification bell. And if you'd like to help support Mormonish financially, we always have links to uh, PayPal and Venmo in the show notes. And we certainly appreciate everything that our viewers and listeners do for us. And I feel like Landon, we would love to have Britt back on another time because this was absolutely 
absolutely incredible. If you'd like to come back, I, I know we we didn't even get more. to nihilism. We'll have we're, to do another episode on we're nihilism. Gonna do, no, I have another <laughs> idea for an episode. As soon as we hit stop record, I'm going to talk to you about. So stay <laughs> okay. tuned, everybody. All right. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks for Mormonish. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.